Are you ready for good talk? And hello again from Scotland. We're good talking it today. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce away this week. Rob Russo is joining us once again. Rob is in Ottawa. Rob, the former uh, bureau chief at the CBC in Ottawa and also Canadian Press in Ottawa, former Washington correspondent for CP. So uh, he's been around the track a few times. And uh, we've got a number of things to talk about today. And let me start this way with the <laughs> with this, the one Scottish connection I could come up with, seeing as I'm here up in the Highlands, north of Inverness. Uh, not far, actually, about 20 minutes away from the ancestral home of, wait for it, John A. Macdonald. <laughs> now, he was born in Glasgow, but his family had come down from up here in the Highlands. And without getting into the pros and cons of John A. Macdonald, uh, we don't want to do that on this uh, podcast, broadcast today, uh, but I found it interesting thinking back to what must have gone through his mind back in 1867. First Prime Minister of Canada, first Government of Canada, an election that had been held in August. Parliament didn't convene that year till November. Now, he had lots of good reasons to have excuses as to why it took so long. I mean, he was building the first Government of Canada, and I'm sure there were a lot of decisions he had to juggle around. 19 members in that first cabinet, which is more, I had to look that up, and that's more than I thought there would be. I thought there would be, well, you know, maybe a dozen, but 19. That's a fairly large cabinet for the very first cabinet. Probably half what it'll be announced on Tuesday for Justin Trudeau in his new cabinet. And that's how we're going to start this off today, by talking about that. Parliament reconvenes not really until when late in november but the cabinet will be announced next week after a fairly lengthy period between the election september 20th and this cabinet so what's been going on and what's likely to happen becomes the question one assumes that these last if, if it goes anything like past cabinet makings there's you know there, there's everything including sometimes a blackboard or i guess a whiteboard now they they have them um where they put names up on the wall and say, would this person work with such and such a portfolio? Or if we move them here, how, who do we move there? Et cetera, et cetera. And they got away everything. A lot of things that John A. Macdonald never had to weigh gender parity within cabinet. I mean, women couldn't vote, couldn't run for office back in 1867, but it's so much more than issues of gender. There's um, geographic, there's race, there's what have you. There's all kinds of different things that are in the mix on decisions made like this. So, uh, Chantel, why don't you start us in terms of in general of what we're hearing, keeping in mind that a lot of the names from the past cabinets and including up to and including this next cabinet are people we may never hear of again. <laughs> you know, they get in cabinet they're in a minor portfolio and you never hear of them until the next cabinet shuffle. Especially if there was a pandemic and everything is focused on just a handful of ministers. Exactly. Uh, so that, that makes it even harder to advance any agenda that anyone would uh, actually notice to go back to your um, feeling of, of history. It kind of dates you. I thought you were going to say, I'm just a, a few kilometers away Uh compared to us to Glasgow, where the big climate conference will be taking exactly. place, momentous event. It's you covered in garbage to... right now, right? Glasgow, they're having some kind of garbage <laughs> strike, and they're, they're yes. concerned about how this is going to look to the world. Uh, and, and it will look bad. Uh, to go back to Sir Johnny MacDonald and the August to November, I read somewhere that uh, the average time between an election and the convening of the House of Commons is 70 days, but that probably includes times like Sir Johnny's when you had to travel for three days to get to Parliament Hill. So if you're going to convene a cabinet, uh, you're going to have to give a week's notice. And another thing about form, 
It will be a bit different uh, on Tuesday from everything I hear from uh, what we are used to. You know, they, all the ministers show up. They usually bring some family. Uh, it's a big day for many of them, especially if it's the first time. But we are still in a pandemic uh, and there are scenarios that could see the swearing in of ministers in batches. A certain number gets sworn in. They all go another number come in and get sworn in. So some networks are actually keeping three, four, five hours uh, set aside for this, which usually takes, what, an hour and a half at most. Sounds um, scintillating. I'm really sorry I'm going to miss it. Five hours of cabinet swearing. <laughs> can you My imagine? <laughs> yeah, yes. And can you imagine how much you would have to say about all those people you would need? Uh, what people don't really know is I've done some specials, not with you, where the host actually had a, a gallery of photos <laughs> so, so that he or who. she would know who it was that was walking in to read the hall to be sworn in because uh, it was just after an election, many new faces, right. and they, they, there was no way to know. And we really didn't want that host to look at us with the question, who was that? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we, we were who no better. Um, the notion of batches probably speaks to the fact that there will be it, it will be a large cabinet, uh, not a smaller one, so closer to 40 than anything. And also that from everything we hear that there will be a lot of changes. It's not just going to be the old cabinet, whoever survived. And then we're bringing a few more people on the raft uh, to make up for those that we lost in the process. And I think it will say quite a bit about uh, I'm guessing two things. The one, the first is what missions Justin Trudeau really takes seriously is this could be his last term uh, and he will want to see real actions on legacy issues. And the other is people have been saying there's been, you know, I call it now a Batman and Robin act of Justin Trudeau showing up with Christopher Freeland uh, every few days as if suddenly they're the dynamic duo of the government. Uh, and there are those who say, well, that kind of shows that Justin Trudeau is, is, you know, putting her on the fast track for his succession. Others who are less kind about politics would say it also means she owns everything that uh, Justin Trudeau will be doing for the next two years, including probably uh, some baggage that you, a successor, would not want. But it will be interesting to see how he positions others who may have leadership ambitions and who would want to make their mark over the, the last few years of the mandate. Remember Kim Campbell going to national defense from justice kind of drew a lot of attention to her in the dying uh, months uh, of Brian Mulroney's tenure. So uh, there's who gets to do what, but there's also what the thinking of the prime minister or what it says about the thinking of the prime minister that is interesting in a shuffle. Oh, there's a lot of a lot of interesting possibilities there in terms of the, the factors at play when we witness who the, who's in that lineup. Rob, what are you hearing? Well, um, he sits down with his uh, his top political advisors, in this case, Katie Telford, and, and also at some point the clerk is brought in and they start to do. The clerk being uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, Canada's top right. bureaucrat, right? Top civil right. servant, top public servant. And and that person is there in this in this instance it's uh, it's uh, Janice Shadet who's who's uh, who's filling filling in for Ian Shugart who is expected to be back in a few months, but they do some political calculus. Uh, that's what they're doing right now. What are your priorities? Is is what the clerk is going to ask, and how much time can you reasonably expect to have before you can achieve these priorities? Um, and you, you've got to you've got a plan for a defeat uh, and and because you don't control everything. So they look at 18 months. And so what do you want to do? And the two or three things he he wants to do uh, involved uh, indigenous affairs, reconciliation, involve the environment, climate change and involve the economy as a as, as a political imperative. We were talking about uh, inflation before, and um, I, I think that, that that is a political imperative during this mandate. So they look at they look at the time they have and those priorities. And, and if you look at that, then I don't think we're going to see a lot of change 
in the uh, portfolios of that, that come to bear on those. So in other words, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson will probably stay in environment. I would imagine Mark Miller's not going to move from Indigenous Affairs. And of course, he's already said Christopher Freeland is not moving. So then he's got to look around and say, what are the problems? What's going to cause me problems over the next little while? Uh, and he's already he's got a longstanding problem at national defense. So uh, uh, nobody is going to be shocked. People will be shocked if Hartjit uh, Sajjan stays in his job at national defense. He will be on the move. Who goes in there? Somebody uh, who's done good work. Uh, and there are a couple of women who've done very, very good work. Anita Anand has done good work in procuring our vaccines. And Carla Qualtro is thought to be a stellar performer as well uh, as, as employment minister. I wouldn't be surprised if those people were considered for those kinds of jobs. So who gets a bump up in the troublesome portfolios? Um, I think Chantal is absolutely right. Um, a, a prime minister like this, the big difference between Justin Trudeau and Sir John A. Macdonald right now is one was on the way in in 1867 and one is on the way out. Uh, and a prime minister like this, whose party's been in power for some time, has a responsibility to try and keep the brand uh, burnished. Um, so uh, Christopher Freeland is seen by Mr. Trudeau, I'm told, and by those around him as the incarnation of, of the Justin Trudeau neoliberal, big L neoliberal. Uh, and, and they're doing everything they can to advance her. But there, there are others who they, they think are, are going to run and, and, and they want to try and do something for them. People like François-Philippe Champagne, uh, people like um, you know, Melanie Jolie is, is kind of a signal that she, she might be interested. So uh, she was thought to have performed ably during the campaign. She might, she might get a bump up as well. You know, you think of, I'm old, so I, I, I remember Kim Campbell. I was there for Kim Campbell, but I, I also remember a little bit of Lester Pearson and he had three prime ministers that he groomed, uh, and, and he was pr quite proud of that later on. One of them, uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of um, uh, parliamentary assistant, uh, Jean Chrétien was his parliamentary assistant, but John Turner and Pierre Trudeau were groomed in, in those Pearson cabinets. So you've got to think that Justin Trudeau is doing the same thing. And there have to be, I think, one or two newcomers in, in this cabinet. And, and when you think about the people who might go in, uh, there, there's a woman uh, named Pascal Saint-Ange, who's a union leader, uh, just elected in uh, Rome-Missisquoi, who I think they're, they're taking a long, hard look at as somebody who could come in the cabinet as well. One of the reasons the cabinet comes so late may well be that there was a recount in that writing, and that only got settled last week. So until you know what you have, you do have, if I can just pick up on the Lester Pearson thing. Right. Yeah. He was the last prime minister to succeed in grooming a successful successor. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at all of the others, Pierre Trudeau, <clears throat> we know what happened to the liberals once his reign was over. Brian Mulroney, let's not go there. Jean Chrétien, 10 years in opposition and with three leaders. Uh, mm -hmm. Stephen Harper, today. So um, not all of them felt it was a big responsibility. I would be hard pressed to find any evidence that Stephen Harper really paid a lot of attention to what would happen to the brand once he was gone. But successful handing over of the torch, maybe, uh, but really hard. And if you look at this track record, the next liberal leader is headed for the opposition benches. Yeah, let me let me back you both up a a bit. I, I know we've all um, been assuming this, and I, I've been at, <laughs> at the lead of assuming this, that the, the, the Justin Trudeau, if he wound up with a minority, for sure would be gone. Even if he had a majority, he might have been gone at the end of it as well. But is there any doubt about that at this point? I mean, we're all operating under this assumption that he's gone in the next year or two. Even Bruce has been feeling that way. Um, We're all could we be jumping to conclusions that uh, that we? I mean, what actual evidence of that decision is is kind of out there? Going going to Tofino and not telling the truth about what you were doing that day is pretty good evidence. I, I, I would say. Look, the the option always remains uh, there. There are no facts in the future. If he should come in and uh, and and uh, be incredibly popular, he would he would have that option. Um, you know, 
he did have that option. There, there are a lot of people around him who said, you know what, Prime Minister, the Conservatives are probably going to be tearing themselves apart for a year and a half or two years over leadership. Uh, if things go really well for us, there is no reason why you couldn't exercise that option again in a couple of years. But boy, uh, there, there are very, very few people around him who seem to believe that's what he wants to do. Um, but the option always remains. Nobody seems to be operating on that belief in this town. You know, I love Just that line. You had. I love that line that Rob had of there are no facts in the future, right? Good line. Uh, Chantel, go ahead. There are, history does not always repeat itself, but there are no examples of a prime minister successfully winning a fourth consecutive term. Doesn't happen. Those who tried failed, uh, Stephen Harper. Uh, those uh, who, who did not, Jean Chrétien, managed to leave and Paul Martin won a fourth consecutive mandate. Pierre Trudeau had four mandates, but he had a defeat in between. I'm thinking that um, if Justin Trudeau has control over his destiny, probably he will decide to go. But prime ministers who had minority governments are not always in control of their destiny. So they, 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 they uh, what I would put an asterisk on is, um, what if his government gets defeated at a time when no one expects it to get defeated? Well, of course, I don't expect Justin Trudeau to quit and say, let's have a leadership campaign when he's facing an election. So under that scenario, I can see him lead the party in a fourth campaign. But if the opposition parties were so determined that they defeated the liberals in government early or in a way we don't expect, it would probably be because they believe the liberals uh, are going to get killed in the election. Opposition bungling, you're exactly right, Chantal. Opposition bungling is the only thing that could keep Trudeau there, probably. Um, and, and it worked for his dad, right? His dad was exactly. on his way out the door. He, he was um, out. He was like, he'd, he'd said he was gone, right? Yeah. Still yeah. out of his seat, but he said he was gone. This is in December of 79. Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't opposition bungling. That was government bungling. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, the government yeah. introduced in a minority government a budget with what seemed, you know, outrageous at the time, an 18 cent a gallon gas tax. And they got hammered. You know, they went yeah. from minority to uh, to a majority liberal government under Pierre Trudeau, who decided he should, you know, he was convinced he should run again. And rather than put the party through, you know, a, a leadership convention, this was all, I think, manipulated by the great Alan McKechn, who was the, the backroom master of, of things. Um, but Trudeau the Elder had sat through all of these accolades. He, he said yep. goodbye. They'd made all the kind <laughs> remarks about them. And then they all had to eat their words within a couple of weeks. <laughs> exactly. But then, but he also had to get defeated in an election before all yep. of that happened. It, yep. It's not right. quite. Uh, so it is not a fourth consecutive mandate. He did yep. fail to win that fourth term until he got a second chance. So they, they were not consecutive. Right. Um, the other question is, and it, it does set in every party, Justin, the, there, that expectation that, uh, that we talked about that it was going to be his last term is within his own caucus and party. Mm. And, and, and there comes a point where if it seems that that's not going to happen and your popularity at the same time is not necessarily way up in the sky, when people start to organize on you. Uh, and that is a peril of, you know, you're the prime minister. You can't send a clear signal that you're going to leave in two years. But if you start sending signals that you want to stay on forever, <laughs> then you, you, you're also taking a hit when it comes to your moral authority on caucus. That may be one of the reasons why he's keeping Christopher Freeland so close, Sean. <laughs> Yes, keep your enemies close. <laughs> and, yeah. well, he does seem to have a, a firm grip on the party, a firm yes. grip on, on, on his potential rivals. Uh, there doesn't seem to be the, the kind of things at all that we saw with, with, uh, with Paul Martin. But there is, uh, quite evidently, an heir apparent, I would say. Uh, and and uh, he's doing everything he can to help her, and that might be the reason why there is no uh, disquiet in caucus right now. Yep. 
but there is this quiet in caucus and in cabinet, and and you do hear it about the you know, the identity of the heir apparent, more so than we are led to believe by what we see in public. Yes. Um, and if Christian Freeland were not a woman, you would see more of it. But this is the Liberal Party who now have a senior minister who is female who stands to buy for the leadership. The only federal party that has never had a female leader for all their talk about parity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a factor, but it, that does not mean it goes down easily with everyone inside that caucus. And outside. And outside and the caucus outside. too, yeah, because, you, I mean, there is an heir apparent on the inside and there's a wannabe heir apparent on the outside. We're, so, yes, are we going to do the carny thing again? No, we're not going to do the carny thing again. In fact, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about MPs and what they'll have to produce to be allowed inside the House of Commons right after this. Our podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade, Canada's fastest growing and award winning online broker. Tired of getting dinged with fees every time you buy or sell U.S. stocks? Well, good news. With Quest Trade, you don't have to. You can hold U.S. dollars in your trading account and avoid expensive, forced conversion fees every time you trade U.S. stocks. Switch today and get up to $50 worth of free trades. Visit questrade.com to open an account and use promo code QUEST. Conditions apply. Okay, Peter Mansbridge back in... Uh the Highlands of Scotland. Rob Russo is in Ottawa. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Um, the government has decided that they will only allow MPs inside the House of Commons who have been um, vaccinated, double vaxxed. And sounds like everybody's on board for this, including Aaron O'Toole. Uh, so is it a non- is this a non-issue or is it a little more complicated than that, Chantal? Sounds more complicated than that because Aaron O'Toole and his, um, there is there is light between Aaron O'Toole and his own caucus whip or his current caucus whip, uh, who is the person in charge uh, as whip of herding the MPs into compliance and into the House of Commons for votes. There is also light between uh, Mr. O'Toole and some of his MPs, Mark Strahl and BC, to name one. Uh, but there are others. Uh, and there are MPs from everything we can gather, an unknown number of MPs that uh, uh, in the Conservative caucus who are not vaccinated. Now, I think Canadian press last checked and found about 40, almost 40, would not reveal their vaccination status. That is not to say they're all unvaccinated, but but they won't reveal. That's a high number of people. And the fact that they won't say kind of speaks to uh, the fact that they're not really into this. uh, You can't get into the parliamentary precinct unless you show proof of vaccination. Others want to launch a battle on how the decision was made. Uh, the, the rationale is that, that because the decision was made by the Board of Internal Economy, which where every party is represented, uh, including the conservatives and the, the speaker uh, uh, speaks for eventually, um, that this was a secret meeting and that this should have been debated on the floor of the House of Commons. Here is the problem. If you really are a conservative MP and you want to die because you will on the hill of the vaccination rules to be in the House of Commons, you will. Because if it comes to a vote, the only question will be whether any CPC MP votes with the NDP, the Green Party, the Bloc Québécois and the Liberals to enforce the vaccination rule in the House of Commons. So it's for for Aaron O'Toole, it, it's just a poison uh, cup. And every time he gets close to it, he's taking a sip. And the only conclusion from these this week's statements uh, is that uh, there is no unity in caucus and possibly not uh, anyone to kind of say recess is over and uh, let's move on here. Rob? Well, you know, six weeks ago we had an election and um, the conservatives were doing pretty well in that election when they ran into a brick wall over vaccinations. 
And now it looks like uh, they're getting back into the um, sort of banged up buggy, firing it up, backing it up and hurtling towards the brick wall one more time. Um, and uh, it, 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 it does it does beggar questions. Look, uh, they're, they're, some who are calling for an open vote, they, they said that the process was secretive. That, that, that may be true. Uh, but do you really want to reveal the bitter divisions in your own party openly like that uh, in front of everybody? Um, if, if you think that Aaron O'Toole's leadership might be shaky now, that would put, uh, you know, you'd hear the ice cracking under Aaron O'Toole's leadership at, at that point. They, uh, they have a few roads to success. One of them is the longevity of this government. Uh, the longer it stays in office, the closer it gets to leaving that time. They, if, if they had any, any kind of sense, they would put the pandemic behind them. And the best way to put the pandemic behind them is to make sure as many people as possible are getting vaccinated. Everybody agrees vaccines work uh, and getting people to work. And then they could pivot to issues where they could actually make up some ground, like the economy, like inflation, which is biting people. Um, but uh, the, this, this is a loser for them. I don't know how they can win. Uh, Maxime Bernier, who went from, you know, nothing to a, a few more votes in the last campaign, wins in this scenario. And so does Justin Trudeau. Uh, and, and the sooner they realize that, the sooner they might be able to put this issue behind them and actually begin to look like a party that might be suitable for consideration for actually holding power. I see that Maxime Bernier is on Aaron O'Toole's mind. Uh, more than a little bit uh, in the recent interviews he's given, he's talked about that. Does Max Bernier survive as a figure? I mean, he has no seats, but does he survive as a figure and on the Canadian political landscape without COVID? Like when COVID does pass, when the vaccine issue is behind us, is there still a place for Maxime Bernier in, on the landscape? Chantel? I just said that there were no facts in the future, and you're going to get into my cracked and cloudy crystal ball. Look, there are there are always going to be ten percent of Canadians who are, um, you know, rapidly anti-immigrant, uh, rapidly uh, um, opposed to uh, any kind of government intervention in their lives, um, rapidly opposed to the notion that uh, that they should have limits placed on them by, by governments. I, I think that, that somebody like Maxime Bernier will always be able to count on some support. Whether, whether that support could actually be mobilized and turned into votes is another matter. Um, but like he was given oxygen by the pandemic and by the vaccine issue. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that brand of oxygen will be on uh, on, on order for him if this issue is put behind him and the Conservatives are keeping that oxygen flowing right now. Well, he's going to try to stick around for as long as possible because in the process, he has made himself one of the most toxic political figures in the country. No one uh, in government anywhere in Canada is about to offer Maxime Bernier a job, uh, including in his home province of Quebec, where uh, even in his own writing, uh, he is now being totally and firmly rejected Despite, you know, this used to be a Bernier-owned riding boat. Uh, and now it's two elections where Maxime Bernier has been shown more decisively the second time than the first uh, that this is where the door is. When, when he finished um, second in the leadership campaign against Andrew Scheer, you could presumably have imagined that this is someone that uh, François Legault could have wanted to recruit as a candidate. That's that's all gone. So so Maxime Bernier has no other purpose in life than to be who he is. Whether he does better, uh, I think, depends on the Conservative Party itself. I.e., if the Conservative Party got its act together and looked like it was really going to replace the Liberals with or without Justin Trudeau in government. A portion, not all of them, but a portion of the people who vote for Maxime Bernier uh, would coalesce behind that conservative party because the, the people that uh, that uh, we're, we're talking about 
also have a, a rabid dislike of liberals in government. Mm-hmm. And that's a mission for them to have. I suspect that at the second, in the second half of the campaign, it wasn't just vaccines that helped Maxime Bernier. It was the perception, the growing perception that the conservatives were not going to win, making it easier to say, well, then I'm not going to you know, hold my nose and vote for Aaron O'Toole, who's taking the party in directions I don't like. I'm going to vote for my man, Maxime Bernier. So if, if the conservatives, as they seem to really want to do, uh, are a mess, then Maxime Bernier probably has a longer lease on life than the alternative. Um, Rob, you mentioned inflation a moment ago, and I, I want to touch on that because, you know, we were living in this, uh, you know, wonderland of, uh, of 1% and 2% inflation for a long time, for years. Uh, and those, enough, uh, those of us who are old enough to remember the, the, the bad inflation days of the, of the 70s and early 80s, and what that did to everything, including interest rates, mortgages, um, we'll never forget it. But here we've seen inflation in the last year sort of edge its way up, and now we're double the number that we were for such a long time. We're over 4% now on inflation. And no suggestion that that's going to end anytime soon, that it could you know, keep going up. So what's the impact on those inflation numbers, which are still awfully low compared with what we saw in the 70s, but still, as I said, double what they were not that long ago. Uh, what's the impact of those and how worried uh, are, are bureaucrats and the government about the impact that can have on governing? Well, they, they're, uh, they seem not to be worried, but, but I can tell you they, they are concerned. Look, you, you said it, it might not be having a huge impact, but there are areas where it's really hurting. You want to bring home the bacon? It's 20% more now for a package of bacon. Uh, a lot of us uh, eat chicken. Chicken is 10% higher. So these are, these are staples. Let's not even talk about fuel. If you want to fuel up your car with gasoline, it's 32% higher. So uh, you eat, it's going to cost you more. You sleep, it's costing you more for your house. You move, it's costing you more to fuel up your car. These are uh, areas of our lives every day that are being severely impacted by this. Now, everybody says it's transitory. Uh, and, and that's probably true. Most economists in government believe that it is transitory, but they're surprised at how persistent it is, the, in the inflation, and they're concerned that uh, as those of us go to renegotiate our, our contracts who, who are in the workforce, you're going to be ch- taking that into account and you're going to be asking for a higher cost of living allowances in order to take that inflation into account. And all of a sudden we get into an inflation spiral and we get into what's called structural inflation, where it's there, and it's really, really hard to eliminate at that point. So it's it's a concern for the government. Uh, their options are very, very few. Yes, it's a global phenomenon, but they do have one or two options, and neither one of them are, are really good for, for this government in particular. When people are suffering, you can you can reduce taxes. Uh, one of the taxes that they that they have that brings in a lot of money is a gasoline tax. I can't see this government reducing the gasoline tax because of the environmental agenda that it has. But there will be a clamor for the government to do so. You can bet that the conservatives are going to ask them to reduce uh, the gasoline tax. That's coming. The other the other instrument that governments have uh, is monetary policy. Uh, if, if inflation becomes persistent, um, you know, they can, in their annual conference uh, between the finance minister and, and the, the governor of the Bank of Canada, they can, uh, they can suggest that inflation needs to be brought down, and that would lead perhaps to a, a rise in interest rates. The bank has signaled that that's coming, but not until next year. If they advance that, just imagine all of those people who've been lining up to, to bid on price on houses over the asking price. What's going to happen to those people who are leveraged out there with huge mortgages when their mortgages go from two or three percent to five or six percent? Again, some of us have paid a lot more than that. I paid 21 percent on a mortgage in Montreal. Okay, (laughs) so uh, in in the early 1980s. So six percent would have sounded very good, but I didn't borrow 
four or five hundred thousand dollars on that place. Uh, it, I borrowed a you know fraction of that. And so when you're going from from three percent to five percent, that's going to make a big difference. And then we're going to see not just pinching, but pulverizing in the economy if that happens. You know, I got, when I got my mortgage in '81, it was twelve percent, and I thought I got a deal. Yeah, because there are guys like Russo in Montreal who are going to be paying a hell of a lot more when he buys in another year. Anyway, Chantel on inflation. Well, now you know why Justin Trudeau called an election in August and why ideally he would have liked to uh, secure a majority. This is this has been somewhere on the radar of governments for a while, and it, there was no better time to have an election from his perspective than September 20th. When you look at this and you look at the calendar, uh, I think for the reasons that Rob explained that they're going to keep uh, it's going to be a watch for item, but not an act on item for a number of months. Uh, and the picture will be clearer once uh, they have to present a spring budget. I, I don't expect much uh, or any action on the government front, in part because the consensus amongst economists is that this is uh, driven in part by supply chain issues that eventually they believe will resolve themselves. And there is a long list of reasons why this could be just uh, something that over time attenuates. But to go back to the wage pressures, there are uh, pressures on wages at the negotiating table that are driven not just by inflation, but by the pandemic and not just in Canada. People uh, who work in the healthcare system, uh, people who work in childcare, they're all at this point saying we need a better deal. We're not interested in continuing to do what we do in those circumstances. And what is really interesting is that in many sectors, the jobs that have traditionally been held by women and that have been paid less uh, than uh, or they are now being offered. Um, the message is we're not interested in, in the, 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 our jobs being kind of the, the side job, the, the extra income. Uh, we want to be paid for what we do and what we are worth. Uh, and it's really interesting to watch in Quebec in particular, where there are labor shortages. The government is going out of its way to try to throw money uh, at uh, childcare and, and nurses uh, to get more of them to sign up to work. But this will undoubtedly contribute to inflation over time. To go back to Chantal's Batman and Robin analogy, I think it's really important that Christopher Freeland is a, is a finance minister now. Uh, you know, uh, neither Justin Trudeau nor, nor his father, Pierre, were very interested in economics. We, uh, we saw that during the last campaign where, where uh, the prime minister was asked about monetary policy and he kind of sloughed it off by saying, you'll excuse me if I have more important things to talk about. Um, we're dealing with families here. I, I don't have time to talk about monetary policy today. Whereas monetary policy has a direct impact on what's happening with those families. But Christian Freeland, former financial journalist, uh, the author of the book Plutocrats, knows the financial system, knows the financial players very, very well. But as Chantal said earlier, could end up wearing what might be a messy inflationary period where people suffer for the next year and a half or so until this all gets settled, if it gets settled in the next year and a half. And we were talking at the beginning of this conversation about a government mandate that might not last more than a year and a half or so. So there are risks in that. But I'm sure or I know that the liberals feel quite comfortable that they have somebody who knows the financial system, international markets in the finance portfolio right now. Um, and one of the assets that the liberals have politically is that the, the conservatives do not seem to be able to um, impose a figure that would be their um, financial anchor in caucus, their finance anchor. Seriously, you look at what has been happening this week, and it was overshadowed by the vaccine debate. But when, when the Conservative Party comes out on the social media under the name of its leader to say inflation is caused by Justin Trudeau's pandemic relief programs, which 
frankly, you have to 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 know nothing. Even I, who is not an economist, see this. And my reaction as a voter, looking at the rhetoric coming out of the conservatives on the economy, is these people think that we're idiots. Uh, and they're not being serious about the economy. That is supposed to be their main forty. But to this day, I can't tell if Pierre Poilievre was taken away as finance critic to be the finance critic of the finance critic of the Conservative Party, <laughs> or, or what the point was. Uh, and and that is a big political advantage to Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland. But it is, does a disservice to Canadians that the Conservatives are not engaging on the economic issues on a serious basis, that they're doing it for fundraising purposes instead, uh, because it takes it, it brings the discussion to the lowest possible partisan common denominator, and no one is served by that, including the Conservatives. Well, um, they might want to change direction on that, because as you both have explained, um, being aware of the economic situation and the direction that is happening within the country on a number of key points on the economy is something that is striking at home on a very, you know, um, street level basis for most Canadians, for a lot of Canadians. And uh, they want to hear real talk, not just good talk on this subject. Okay, we're going to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Alberta. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Okay, back with Good Talk. You're listening on uh, Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we're glad to have you with us. Peter Mansbridge in uh, Scotland this week. Uh, Chantelle Berry is in Montreal. Rob Russo is in Ottawa. Rob's filling in for Bruce, who's away this week. Um, Alberta had its uh, referendum plebiscite, uh, call it as you will, uh, just a few days ago, and it covered a whole wide range of different issues. Uh, But the one that was receiving most attention was Albertans' vote on equalization you know, mainstay of how Canada operates. The final result on that vote isn't known yet. There's still uh, um, serious sections of the province, mainly around Edmonton, that have not, uh, we haven't seen their, their vote numbers yet. But it would take an overwhelming vote against the yes side, which is that equalization needs to be, as far as Alberta is concerned, taken out of the Constitution. Um, it would take an overwhelming vote in that area for that not to happen, for that yes side not to win. It's possible, but it it seems unlikely at this point. So what does it all mean? Uh, Does it mean anything? Like, does something happen when the final result is known and it's a yes vote by Alberta? Do we suddenly say, okay, that's it for that part of the Constitution? Or is it just a moment in time where, uh, you know, a... a, uh, um, a feeling was expressed by the people of Alberta on this topic. What difference does it make? Or does it make a difference? Chantal. A feeling was expressed by the people of Alberta. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what the turnout was for this municipal election and how many who did participate in the election actually cast a ballot on equalization. But the, typically the numbers on turnout in municipal elections are low. And uh, it does look like uh, uh, the yes will win with less than 60% and maybe less than 55% of the vote. So when you take the two of them together, it is not the strong statement that you could have hoped for if you were going to use that vote as leverage uh, to to at least have a talk about equalization that goes your way uh, or the way of Alberta. Uh, for the sake of comparison, I think, it was 94% of Quebecers who participated in a referendum in 1995. That's just about everybody that could walk to a polling station, uh, cast a ballot. That does put a lot of weight on the result. Um, I think you got a sense of what the answer is uh, from the federal government this week. And Justin Trudeau, over the course of a news conference, said, well, you know, great uh, for Jason Kenney. Now he needs to bring this to his fellow premiers. 
Because if you're going to make changes uh, along those lines in the Constitution, you need the support of uh, seven, six premiers, for, or seven with Alberta, adding up to 50% of the population, meaning you need to get Ontario on side, and then five other premiers. Uh, nothing, and what Justin Trudeau did not say is, even if you did get that, you then have to get the House of Commons and the Senate to uh, support that amendment. In clear, uh, I think Justin Trudeau's government is predisposed to say we've taken note of this and we're always willing to talk about the equalization formula. But And that is true, as he pointed out, it is reviewed every 10 years. It is not the subject of a federal-provincial negotiation every 10 years. The federal government basically consults and decides. And the last time the current formula, the one that Jason Kenney dislikes so much, uh, was reviewed. Jason Kenney was sitting at Stephen Harper's cabinet table. Hmm. Rob. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, um, I did not see any images of Jasper Avenue jammed with people uh, excited about this issue. Uh, there's just it, it, it's not it's not what's stoking um, the, the province's politics right now. No prime minister can afford to ignore what is a genuine sense of grievance and isolation in Alberta, without, without a doubt. But if Jason Kenney thought that this would be the vehicle that he could use to drive to Ottawa and, and to deliver a demonstration of how dangerous that grievance is to, to Confederation, I don't think this is going to be the vehicle. Um, you know, if, you, if you ask Albertans about what their, what their priorities are right now, it's the pandemic. It's pandemic management. It's coming out of the pandemic. If you ask them what's next, a lot of them are saying oil and gas is having a moment right now. What are we going to do this time? Uh, uh, so that uh, it, it, to echo the famous bumper sticker, we don't piss it all away this time. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, what what can Alberta do to convince the, the federal government that this sense of grievance might be uh, used to, to genuinely have a, a serious discussion about helping Alberta transition uh, to that moment that we all know is inevitable when the world will need less oil and gas. It's going to happen. It might not happen for 30 years, as, as a lot of people say. But, you know, I, I would be trying to, 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 to use that sense of grievance that way. Um, you know, all of us uh, on, on, on this discussion uh, have, have constitutional experience. We all, we all um, you know, I, I didn't, I, my hair was dark and, and I didn't have these bags under my eyes when, when uh, before I started covering constitutional discussions that meant that, uh, that we were up all night talking about the modified Mendez formula. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Do you want to spend five minutes on that now? <laughs> Please. <laughs> but, um, you know, you know that there, there, there are more pressing priorities right now for the province of Alberta, and I'm not sure that this is one of them. But it's not just the people of Alberta. There is one province where it's possible to get passions uh, uh, up when you talk about the Constitution. That would be Quebec. Right. Um, but look what happened to uh, Premier Legault's call to vote not for the Liberals or the NDP because they were uh, they paused uh, they they posed an existential threat to Quebec's autonomy really. And then people who vote for François Legault provincially and think he's doing a good job went and voted for Justin Trudeau. Yes. So there's, I have found living in this province, and when I covered the Constitution, I actually lived on the other side of the bridge in Ontario. But once I came here, I found that there is traction for issues that pertain to the Constitution when it comes to identity. Uh, but or culture cuts in the case of Stephen Harper, for instance. But when you start talking to people, even in Quebec, about uh, the uh, exclusive jurisdiction of the province on manpower training, their eyes glaze over, as they should, I believe. Uh, and so if you cannot get that uh, arise out of Quebecers over jurisdictional issues. Good luck uh, with doing it about equalization, a word we were all trained um, back in the day to try to avoid in our stories or put closer to the bottom of the story so as not to turn readers off. 
You're probably wondering why I left equalization to the bottom of this hour. <laughs> uh, oh, it's a funny country, isn't it? That we uh, we have this kind of revolving nature of discussions and debates on some of the key issues that kind of represent the country in, in many different ways. And I I don't know how often you two ever play the if game, but I I do every once in a while. I've tried to play the if game lightly on a, a number of scenarios that unfold in in Canada and wondered how past leaders, whether provincial or federal, would have handled certain situations. And, you know, I watched the Alberta story and I watch it, especially on the COVID front, because my dad was chief deputy minister of health there for a while for Peter Lougheed. And I wonder what would those two have done on COVID that Jason Kenney hasn't done with, with his top people? Um, but it's the same on the equalization debate. It's the same with uh, the issues that have unfolded in, in, in Quebec, as Chantel just mentioned. And you wonder, you know, how Charest would have handled it, how Levesque might have handled it. Uh, you know, it's always an interesting claim, a game to play the ifs, even though it doesn't really mean anything in the end because we're not in that situation. Um, but nevertheless... There we go. Um, let me uh, let me wrap things up here. Um, if you're looking for one surprise on Tuesday when that, that new cabinet is announced, just one, uh, what would it be? Rob, do you want to uh, take a shot at that? Um, uh, well, it wouldn't be a surprise, but uh, I, I think it's it's past time that a woman is in charge of the Department of National Defense. I think this is the time. Uh, and uh, a lot of people would never have seen that coming. And I think that uh, um, that's not just a powerful symbol. It's an absolute necessity, given what's going on in the Department of National Defense. Chantal? It's hard to talk about surprises when one is talking about a package that one can't even begin to unwrap to see what is inside. But uh, yeah. I'm guessing it will be or it would be a surprise if Justin Trudeau sets aside the number of ministers who ran and were reelected. Uh, and I'm thinking maybe of the older ministers. A colleague pointed out on another panel that this is a government that doesn't have a lot of time for baby boomers. Um, so... Mark Garneau, Carolyn Bennett, uh, they did not uh, treat uh, previous baby boomers uh, always very kindly, shipped uh, Stéphane Zion off, John McCallum, go down the list. Um, although Ralph Goodell had a really good run and would still have, I would argue. So, And, of course, the biggest surprise of all, which I don't expect this time, is uh, the day when there are more women than men in the cabinet. Well, we're only days away from finding out. Um, thanks, Rob, for filling in this week. It's been great to have you with us. And as always, Chantel, thank you. Uh, I'm Peter Mansbridge in um, Darnick, Scotland. We'll be back next week for sure with some really interesting programming starting on Monday. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you again on Monday. Mm-hmm.